2: wherever
3: you get your podcasts.
4: The year was 1955 and I was in grade school. Now, I wasn't really reading the newspapers at that age, but I could certainly hear the radio and TV stories about Jonas Salk's discovery. An historic victory over a dread disease is dramatically unfolded at the University of Michigan. Here, scientists usher in a new medical age with the monumental reports that prove the Salk vaccine against crippling polio to be a sensational success. A vaccine to prevent polio. As a kid, I had often gone door-to-door soliciting for the March of Dimes. That was a campaign to find such a vaccine, and it was an initiative spurred by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, who had been crippled by polio. I certainly didn't understand the disease, but I vividly remember the films of polio's victims with children on crutches. So when the vaccine campaign rolled out, I was vaccinated at school along with all the other kids. We didn't mind, of course, we were too young to object, but there was certainly no objection by parents either. Salk's vaccine was a miracle as far as they were concerned. It kept their children from contracting a crippling disease. For these parents not to give their kids the polio shot would have been completely unthinkable. I'm Seth Shostak.
2: I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science produced at the SETI Institute. In this, a regular look at critical thinking how widespread COVID vaccine hesitancy has snatched defeat from the jaws of victory, how it's created a petri dish for the emergence of dangerous virus variants, and why there are many reasons for choosing not to be vaccinated, reasons that aren't adequately captured by the term anti-vax. This episode, skeptic check, (laughs) anti-vax.
4: During the middle of the COVID pandemic in 2020, it was simply unimaginable that when a vaccine arrived, half the population of the United States would refuse to take it. Even infectious disease expert Paul Offit, who has fought vaccine hesitancy and misinformation his entire career, didn't anticipate widespread resistance to the coronavirus vaccine when he appeared on our program in the spring of 2020.
1: I think people will be knocking down the doors to get this vaccine. I mean, I understand the anti-vaccine people have been wondering whether or not this vaccine is going to be mandated. I mean, mandated. There may be a lottery for this vaccine. I don't think they're going to have much influence. Certainly, they'll put out their usual misinformation and float their conspiracy theories. But I just don't think in the face of this scourge, assuming it continues the way it is, that this is going to be a big issue.
2: Instead, a little over a year later, only half of Americans are fully vaccinated, with the demographics of the vaccinated and unvaccinated often divided by political affiliation.
4: A recent Axios-Ipsos poll found most unvaccinated people don't feel responsible for the surge in COVID cases. A separate survey by the Kaiser Family Foundation found that just over half of unvaccinated Americans think that the vaccine poses greater risk to their health than COVID-19. We thought that we might have had COVID in the rearview mirror and resumed our normal lives by now, at least in the United States. But instead, we're witnessing a surge of new cases.
2: We invited Dr. Paul Offit back for an update on where vaccine resistance has taken us in the fight against the pandemic. He is a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Disease at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And he is the director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital.
4: Paul. I'm old enough to recall when the polio vaccine, the Salk vaccine, suddenly became available and people were really dancing in the streets, no more polio. And as a kid, I lined up to get my shot and I don't remember any objections to getting that. What's different now?
1: I think we're a different society. Uh, You know, I mean, I too remember the polio vaccine. I was four years old in 1955 when that vaccine came out. Um, I was actually in a polio ward when I was five years old, so I remember polio well. You know, the polio vaccine was roundly embraced. Polio virus had few friends. Polio virus was an enemy. This virus has many friends. Conspiracy theorists, uh, purveyors of misinformation, vaccine denialists, science denialists. Those are all friends of SARS-CoV-2. Polio virus had no friends. So it's just a different time. It's the zeitgeist. It's the culture. It's a culture of declaring your own scientific
4: truths, even if they're wrong. To be honest, I have relatives who have not gotten vaccinated. And of course, you know, I push them a little bit on this, although I have to, you know, remain friendly to them. They're relatives, right? But, you know, they say, well, they're worried about side effects, that uh, this vaccine is something that was developed very quickly and hasn't been fully tested and is not approved by the FDA. And so who knows what it could do to you
1: hasn't been tested. There are more than 320 million doses of this vaccine that are out there. More than 160 million people have been vaccinated. I can think of few licensed products that have the safety, efficacy and immunogenicity profile that this vaccine has. This is far from an untested product. Um, I'm not sure what people want at this point.
4: Well, but you know, why then does the FDA say, well, this is an emergency authorization only? What are they waiting for?
1: Right, so, so the technical definition of emergency use authorization is the company then can distribute what is considered an investigational new drug. We don't do this normally because we're not usually in a pandemic, so that's what you're saying. Um, but remember, the vaccine was developed quickly, certainly it was the first vaccine developed within a year of isolating the virus. Nonetheless, the, the vaccine clinical trials, the 30,000 person trial of, of Moderna, or 44,000 person trial of Pfizer, those are typically sized pediatric and adult vaccines vaccine trials, the two-month safety follow-up after the last dose is typical for any adult or pediatric vaccine. The only difference really functionally was that when the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee, and I'm on that committee, said in December this vaccine is safe and effective, they could only say it was effective for a few months. They couldn't say it was effective for two or three or four years, but you're not going to do a two-year study or three-year study in the midst of a pandemic. That's only the real functional difference. So people should be reassured by that. And, you know, you could argue, as Maurice Hilleman, who I think was the father of modern vaccines, having developed or done the primary research of nine of the 14 vaccines, he said, I never breathe a sigh of relief until the first 3 million doses are out there. Fair enough. Well, 300 million doses are out there. And and you see this vaccine is remarkably effective and safe. I mean, look at it. You know, 99 percent of people who are killed by this virus are unvaccinated. That should tell people something.
4: Okay, so uh, maybe it would make a difference if the FDA came out and said, no, these vaccines are now approved. Do you see that on the horizon? And if so, how far is the horizon? Well, I'm guessing. I don't
1: know anything specifically, um, but I'm guessing that we could have approved products by mid-September.
4: Okay. Let's consider some of the other objections I hear from people about getting vaccinated. One is that the vaccines somehow have microchips in them. Uh, This apparently due to the machinations of Bill Gates. And uh, that turns the vaccinated into robotic slaves or something similar. I didn't believe this when I first heard it, but I've heard it more than once.
1: Well, if you've heard it more than once, then it must be true. Because, you know, I think the thing about the Internet is they do not let you lie on the Internet. So there you have it now. I mean, what can you say? It's it's obviously absurd. Um, Probably the word shouldn't be microchip. It should be nanochip, right? Because microchips are really too big to fit through the end of the needle. It would have to be one of those really tiny microchips or nanotrips rather. So I mean, what can you say? It's uh, at least the things that they put into like dogs to sort of tell where they are. So you never lose them. Those are too big to fit through the end of a needle.
4: Yeah, I, I guess you would see those those particles. Maybe you should have your vaccine strained. Another objection that I actually hear even with people I know is the idea that the vaccine might affect a woman's fertility. Any truth to that? No,
1: it was born of a letter that was written by two researchers to the European Medicines Association claiming falsely that the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, which is the protein that you make an antibody response to with these vaccines, and a protein on the surface of placental cells called syncytion one were similar, that they were genetically similar, but they weren't. To say that those two proteins have a genetic similarity is to say you and I both have the same social security number because they both contain the number five. So that was wrong.
4: There seem to be plenty of people, actually, who just simply say, I don't want the government to tell me what to do. And that's less a science question than, if you will, a policy thing or or a a social objection in a way.
1: You know, but we were Americans. We love to claim freedoms, including freedoms we don't have. Like the freedom to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection. This is not a personal choice. I mean, if I choose not to get a tetanus vaccine after I step on a rusty nail and get tetanus, that's a personal choice. No one's going to catch tetanus from me. It's not a contagious disease. This is a contagious disease. And so when you make a choice, you're not just making a choice for yourself, you're making a choice for everyone with whom you come in contact. And that is, sorry, not yours to make. I mean, you know, you hear stories of like, just I just heard this the other day from a friend who said, that, someone she knows, um, a, a man chose not to vaccinate himself, and so he got COVID, which he then proceeded to uh, transmit to his pregnant wife, who, because she was, at pre- was pregnant, was at increased risk of the disease, severe disease. She gets hospitalized, goes to the ICU, is ventilated, where she proceeds to deliver her baby severely prematurely. So the decision he made for himself was a decision he also made for his wife and his unborn child. A lot of people that catch this virus catch it from somebody else, often from somebody else who was unvaccinated. So you do make a decision
4: for other people. And that, frankly, is not your right. Paul, these vaccines, of course, are not 100% effective in keeping you from developing the disease. And so people get them even if they are vaccinated. I assume that's what is meant when people say breakthrough cases.
1: I think the term breakthrough is
4: misdefined
1: in the in the uh, media. To me, a breakthrough is someone who, despite being fully vaccinated, nonetheless is hospitalized or killed by this virus. So it's close to 100% effective, if you use that definition. Um, it's a mucosal virus, like rotavirus, like influenza. So like all mucosal viruses, the protection against moderate to severe to critical disease will be good, excellent, but not so good against asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection. So for people who have an asymptomatic infection or mildly symptomatic infection, that's 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 okay. That's that's not going to cause you to go to the hospital or go to the morgue. That's okay. But again, I think that um, the term breakthrough is misused, and people think, you know, why even get the vaccine if I'm still going to get like an asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection? Which they shouldn't think, because really, you're just trying to protect people from being really, really hurt, seriously hurt by this virus.
4: Yeah. Well, uh, what what is the influence of disinformation, particularly on social media? To these attitudes. I mean, if we didn't have that, would we still have so many people kind of objecting to getting vaccinated? There, there are people who actually make a profit peddling misinformation. The New York Times recently profiled Joseph Mercola, an osteopathic physician who writes articles with lies and misinformation about vaccines that are then shared online. I mean, I, I can see how this benefits him, but is there no control over this? Yeah,
1: there's no control over this. That's exactly right. It's a free society. People like Joe Mercola can proffer their cottage industry of false hope by selling all these cures for things that don't cure what he's claiming. That's who he is. That's how he makes his living. But
4: Paul, how would you suggest that the average person will know what to believe? I mean, there are these disinformation, you know, sources what do you recommend? How can they know? Right, so, so how do you sort out good information from bad information? I mean, the Internet is a rich source
1: of both. How do you sort that out? I mean, I would argue that you go to what are reliable sources. So, I mean, so, for example... Children's Hospital of Philadelphia has, has an excellent vaccine education center site. The Mayo Clinic does. The CDC does. Um, I think the, you know, usually university-based or academia-based sources, Johns Hopkins Medical School, et cetera, have great websites that go through this. I think what people tend to do when they try and quote-unquote research a subject is they read people's opinions about it, and, and often on sites that are selling something. I think that's the first key. I mean, the Joe Mercola sells things. should already tell you something because these other sites don't. The, you know, the, the congressmen who stand up and make false claims about vaccines, I mean, what can you do? You, you can try and change all of that. I think, frankly, it's impossible. So what you have to do is what people are doing now, which is mandate vaccines. And I think that's going to be the discussion over the next six months, basically saying, I'm sorry you're a victim of misinformation. I'm sorry you have false attitudes and beliefs about vaccines, but gosh darn it, you're going to get vaccinated uh, if you want to stay in your
4: place of employment,
1: or you want to go to the school you want to go to, or you want to go to work
4: in the hospital you're going to work in. Well, okay, we're not too far from Google headquarters here, and, uh, you know, they've made it a policy. You either get vaccinated or clean out your desk, and if enough employers said that, maybe that would kind of solve the problem. Yeah, bravo. I hope
1: more and more employers do say it, and I I think they want,
4: not only employers, but also
1: like bars, restaurants, you know, that you can't go in unless you show your a proof of uh, vaccine immunity and or at least that you've received a vaccine. And, you know, that's happening in Israel. It's happening in France. It's happening in other countries. There's no reason it can't happen here. And I think it will happen here. I would be much more comfortable going into a restaurant where I showed my vaccine card, knowing that everybody in that restaurant also was vaccinated. That would make me feel a lot better than walking in there not
4: knowing that. What, What about the role of insurance companies? You know, maybe they could say, look, you know, you either get vaccinated or we're not gonna insure you against whatever medical costs might accrue because you got thrown into the hospital.
1: That's right. If you choose, I feel the same way about cigarette smoking. I mean, if you choose to smoke cigarettes and then get lung cancer, you know, I, I, why should insurance pay for that? You've you've, you've done this to yourself. And I, I feel the same way about this. Sure, let, let insurance companies back away if you've chosen
4: not to get a vaccine and then you get COVID. Why should they pay for your care? You're the one who made that choice. Paul, when you came on our show last year before the vaccines, you expressed confidence that people would, you know, would want them and that vaccine resistance would be low because it would be, you know, getting vaccinated would be the key to resuming your normal life. It doesn't seem to be what happened. What went wrong? Right. I mean, I should have prefaced it by
1: saying I'm a Philadelphia Eagles season ticket holder. So I'm a ridiculous optimist. Um, I think that, uh, you know, you would have assumed that in a in a reasoned and logical world that people would say, look, here's a virus that's killed hundreds of thousands of people. Here's a vaccine that's clearly safe and effective. It's been given to more than 100 million people safely and effectively. This is our ticket out. This is the golden ticket. Finally, we have a way out of this pandemic. But uh, uh, we don't live in that world of logic and reason.
4: Well, one thing that you know, I've noticed personally, so this is a bit anecdotal, is that the vaccination rates have improved recently, the past week or two, something like that. And I wonder if this is because either the new Delta variant is so transmissible, uh, you know, and so it, it seems to pose a, an entirely new threat, or because of the growing number of stories that the country is actually being held back by the unvaccinated, that it's becoming less fashionable to say you're not going to get vaccinated
1: i don't know i think it's probably a few things i think one it is fear of delta i think two you're starting to see um more mandates which is sort of compelling vaccination um and you know we head from august into fall and winter this virus is going to take off again even more than it is now i think and maybe that's part of it too but um i hope it's sustained i hope it continues to increase i'm skeptical about that i just think there's a hardcore probably about 60 or 70 million people who just don't want to get vaccinated. And I think the only way to to get them vaccinated is to compel them.
4: Paul Offit, thanks so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure.
2: Paul Offit is a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Disease at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and he is the director of the Vaccine Education Center. Paul often mentioned uh, a fall surge. And, and why is it that the virus surges in the fall?
4: Well, it's simply a lifestyle thing. In the fall, people tend to go indoors. And when you're indoors, of course, the spread of the vaccine is facilitated because, you know, you don't have oh, breezes blowing it all away or sunlight, it's ultraviolet, destroying it, whatever.
2: Uh the other thing that struck me is that you and he talked about the possibility of vaccine mandates. And when you had that conversation, that hadn't become a news item yet. And the next day, you found that companies and cities were joining Google, for example. You mentioned Google in, in the interview in now requiring vaccination That has become a really hot issue
4: now. Yeah. Well, and it's not just your place of employment might decide that they don't need you if you don't get vaccinated. But it's also the fact that, you know, going to cultural events. You want to go to the opera. You want to go to a play, maybe even to the movies eventually, if you can't show. (laughs) I
2: I cannot see going back to the movies for a while. But, okay, go on. Really? I just love the movies. No, I love
4: the movies. I mean, that's the kind of pressure. When it suddenly becomes inconvenient not to be vaccinated, maybe that'll work.
2: Although we want to get vaccination rates as high as possible, not everyone who is unvaccinated is staunchly opposed to getting a shot. Understanding that may help get more shots in the arms. Why unvaccinated is not always anti-vax,
4: next. Our regular look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science is called Skeptic Check. In this episode, we're looking at the consequences of being skeptical about the efficacy and the safety of the coronavirus vaccine. It's Skeptic Check, Anti-Vax.
1: Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
4: As an emergency medicine physician, Dr. Tanani Mariam has witnessed the way COVID-19 has had a disproportionate effect on the disenfranchised and minority populations of the country. The disease has not affected everyone the same way.
2: Similarly, although the vaccine is free, access to it is not without cost. Some people lack a means of transportation or, if they're in rural areas of the country, it is a financial and time burden to get to a vaccine site. That's why saying that only half the American population is not fully vaccinated is not the same thing as saying that half the population is anti-vax. There are many reasons why people haven't yet had the shot. Understanding what they are helps health officials overcome vaccine hesitancy.
4: Tananya, while all unvaccinated people share vulnerability to COVID, uh, that may be the only thing they share because there are many reasons why people don't get vaccinated. Can you tell me what some of them are?
3: One of the reasons that I have come across is people will tell us that they don't have the time to make an appointment, their lives are unpredictable to make that appointment to come to a vaccine center. And people have just-in-time jobs. They go out in the morning. They line up to get a job. If they get a job, they get a four-hour job. They get a 12-hour job. That's what they're going to take home with them. They can't say, I'm going to take Tuesday off because Tuesday might be the only day this week that they get a job. And so getting an appointment to get a vaccination is not an option for many people. So when we set up a pop-up vaccination spot in a downtown area in Washington, and we realized that if we went into the kitchens and said, we've got a pop-up vaccination, people came in their 15-minute break to get vaccinated.
4: So they don't have the flexibility of scheduling. Is there anything else that uh, you've seen?
3: Part of scheduling is getting to a, a place at a time. That's part of scheduling. So getting there is, you know, do you have the bus schedule? As many of us probably know, bus schedules have been cut back. So there's a lot more waiting period associated with it. And so having to take that part of your day out to get this done, for example, means that the other things that you would have been doing during that time, for example, childcare has to then be taken and given that responsibility is given to somebody else, many times at a cost to you. And when you're there trying to make ends meet, taking that time out from potential earning and possibly having to invest more money into it, when the correlation between the benefit from this investment that you're being asked to make is not as directly apparent as some other things might be, for example, taking that time to go to the grocery store. So I don't like the word anti-vax because it conjures up an image and that image conjures up a response. And that response is probably not the response that is going to help that person. And it's not that people are anti-vaccination, but they are curious as to why this is being pushed so much.
4: Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Is it just the fact that they haven't had routine health care all their lives and have confidence in the uh, field of medicine? How do you see it?
3: I think people have confidence in the field of medicine. And I think like any other exposure, the more one is exposed, one becomes more comfortable. And so it's interesting, even in the areas of the city where vaccination rates are lower, The vaccination rates amongst people who interact regularly with the healthcare system, that tends to be people who are older and people who have chronic illnesses, the vaccination rates in those groups are higher, in my experience. The vaccination rates are lower in the group that has less regular interaction with the healthcare system, i.e. might not be getting offered the vaccine as, as often or they come to the emergency department for something else and I can offer them a vaccine and it's available and any barriers that might have been there are taken away, then people will often agree to it.
4: You say you don't like the term anti-vaxxer. Why don't you like that term? It sounds like they're...
3: Because people get other vaccines. So they're not anti-vaccination. In fact, I will often ask people if they get their other immunizations and they tell me that they do. So it's not a fundamental dislike or uh, fear that vaccines are some sort of pollutant. But again, it comes down to some more sort of emblematic uh, kind of um,
4: reactions. Well, all right. I mean, I have to say that that's rather a hopeful note. It's not some deep-seated fundamental, you know, <laughs> uh, objection to vaccination. Uh, I wonder how that influences your answer to this question. Do you think that the vaccine should be mandated? We we asked Paul at that question, and he, he said yes. He said, look, this is public health. I'd, I'd be curious to know what you have to say about that.
3: I agree. I agree that the vaccination against Covid 19 ought to be mandated now mandated itself that word itself is a heavy-handed word we have to find words that are sort of kinder gentler and make people more enthusiastic than we're forcing you to get this So I I can't say that I've come up with the word, but maybe a better sense of community, the need for us as a group, our immunity as a group needs to be better to fight off this, this illness. And I think the conversation has to keep going back to, we are facing a common enemy. This common enemy is a virus. It is designed to keep reproducing and to have a competitive advantage. And so the more united we are in our response to it, the better off we will all be.
4: I mean, that sounds like since you need to tailor the message to the audience, you know, this is a one size doesn't fit all problem, it sounds like. And so, yes. who, so who are the people? I mean, is it just individual physicians our local politician. I mean, who should be tailoring their message to uh, whatever constituency they might speak to?
3: The people that know how to tell the stories in the way that they are relatable. So as this as COVID scourge became very apparent. And in fact, we had an outbreak that was reported in the papers around one of our Ethiopian churches. I'm originally from Ethiopia. So people even felt a little bit more that there was some stigmatization that could be happening. And so within the Ethiopian community, which is one of the largest immigrant communities in the Washington DC area, within the Ethiopian community, it was becoming more apparent to us that there was vaccine hesitancy, that all the questions were not being legitimately answered. And so we set up because of an enterprising pharmacist that was able to get uh, vaccines, et cetera. We were able to set up sort of pop-up vaccination clinics. And we were shocked at the number of people that showed up. And as we spoke to people, A, they were comfortable because The science lingo could be explained with a language that was a primary language for all of us. Number one, and number two, when people were going to get vaccinated, there's a lot of cards being asked for. You're you're asked for insurance card. You're asked for your ID card, and it's not that people mind, but that sort of is the question is, am I going to be charged? I thought it was free. Why are they asking for the insurance card? Is this going to come with a bill later? There were all these questions, and we could comfortably respond to these questions. And people would say, what if I don't have status? What if I don't have a legitimate ID card? We'd say, that's okay. And they'd be standing right there, pick up the phone and say, it's safe here. You can come and get your vaccine. And we brought our i I brought my children uh, to help with recording, so by making it a family affair and by making it a community affair, we would vaccinate thousands of people over a weekend.
4: well, finally tonight then i I put it to you. suppose you know this evening you get a phone call and they're making you Surgeon General of the United States and so <laughs> You go on national TV the next day, and they're going to give you one minute to make an announcement to the country, a message that presumably will help get us to the end of this very dark and long tunnel. What would you say?
3: I have two children, and they're both vaccinated. I chose to vaccinate them to protect them against a virus that is here to stay. It has come very quickly but it's going to be around for a while. And I know that they're going to be exposed to it, not just once, not just twice, but possibly for the rest of their lives. And I want to give them a fighting chance at having the best possible life that they can have. And that's why I chose to give them the vaccine.
4: Tananya Mariam, thanks so very much for speaking with us
3: thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to speak with you.
2: Tananya Haila Mariam is an emergency medicine specialist in Washington, D.C., and she is affiliated with George Washington University Hospital. That was such an insightful interview, Seth, in outlined some of the many reasons why people do not get vaccinated.
4: Yeah, and a lot of them were, you know, not attitudinal. It wasn't you know, oh, I don't trust the government or, you know, the news told me I shouldn't do it or something like that. These were very largely practical things, right? You can't get time off from your job, for example, to go do it or, or it's not easy to get to. I mean, those are things that, you know, you don't think about unless they are your problem, too. She had a very strong
2: reaction to the term anti-vax. And it occurs to me that those people who are anti-vax in the traditional sense, they're also quite vocal. So one of the things that may have happened is that that community has sort of characterized all the unvaccinated people because the unvaccinated that she described are, are quiet.
4: Yeah, I really do think that there is a visibility problem here because what you see most is people saying, these people refuse to get the vaccine for, and they give you some excuse, but those are overrepresented because those are the dramatic reasons. And of course, the media seizes on those first being unvaccinated has consequences as we've heard one that is certainly of great concern is how it leads to the rise of virus variants a closer look at the delta variant and others that might be waiting in the wings
2: next it's our regular look at critical thinking this episode is skeptic check anti-vax on big picture science
0: So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.
4: The high number of people who choose to remain unvaccinated despite being eligible to get this shot means quite simply that the pandemic we're in now in 2021 is not the one of a year ago. The nature of the beast has changed. It has literally mutated. The original coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, that emerged in the fall of 2019 has mutated many times, in fact, producing variant after variant. The latest, which surfaced in India in December 2020, has been a game changer. If you look at the growing threat of what we're all concerned about, the Delta variant, what do we know about that variant? The transmissibility is unquestionably greater than the wild-type SARS-CoV-2 as well as the Alpha variant. It is associated with an increased disease severity as reflected by hospitalization risk compared to Alpha.
2: Multiple variants of the coronavirus that because COVID-19 are circulating worldwide. They're named using the Greek alphabet. The Alpha, Beta, Gamma, and Delta have been named variants of concern. But the World Health Organization calls Delta the fastest and fittest COVID variant yet. But what is the connection between being unvaccinated and the formation of variants? Well, that is the question we put to the Health and Science Editor at New York Public Radio, WNYC, Sikan
5: Akpan. Yeah, you know, mutation isn't uncommon. You know, every genetic feature that we've ever seen in an organism or a virus is the result of a mutation. And with the coronavirus, we know that these mutations, one new one gets established in the human population about every 11 days. So with millions of cases around the world, you know, we're just giving the virus a lot of opportunities, a lot of swings of the bat or bites at the apple to change in a way that it might learn how to bypass our immunity or learn how to really get stuck in our noses and mouths and cause these infections, you know, to, to get better at causing infections. and so. You know, none of these variants are really surprises. Mm
2: -hmm. The study that came out recently that said that vaccinated people and unvaccinated people, in some cases, have the same amount of viral load in their noses and in their throat. And one of the explanations is that the Delta variant is not the original strain of the coronavirus that we were dealing with. So in some ways, the 2020 pandemic is not the 2021 pandemic with the Delta variant,
5: Yeah, exactly. I mean, and if you think about how often the virus mutates and how fast it's mutating, the pandemic isn't the same from day to day, right? Like we have a new set of viruses out in the world every single day, because that's just what viruses do. This is a bit of a sidebar, but I think there are some people who are banking on the idea that immunity that they've gotten from an infection, you know, they've recovered from an infection, and, and now they think that they have strong enough immunity to prevent against Delta. You know, what we're seeing from the United Kingdom is that reinfections are going up. That natural immunity, as some people describe it, from recovering from the coronavirus, I don't think it's gonna be enough to prevent Delta.
2: Let's get to know this Delta variant. on, describe how the Delta variant is moving from person to person other than fast. Is there anything else we need to know about how it's moving?
5: That is sort of the big thing, actually. You know, I think there was, there were some questions and there are some worries currently about, you know, what it might mean for our immunity, you know, and our our defensive shields to block the, the Delta variant. But, you know, looking at the mutations and looking at some of the data that's come out over the past two months, it looks like Delta's real advantage is that it's better at infecting us rather than bypassing our immunity. Um, picture the prior variants as being like a, a softball that hits you in the nose. Like, yeah, that's that's gonna hurt, it can cause some damage. Now you take the delta variant and it's like a cannonball that's like hitting you in the nose, right? It's just it's just able to cause a little more damage to the body, it's able to embed a little bit easier in our bodies and and that seems to be the difference between you know alpha which was very contagious and delta which is you know really blowing things out of the water
2: so you've brought up a couple interesting points about this about this variant one is that it's it's transmissibility so if i understand right the alpha variant was 50% more transmissible than the original strain of coronavirus, and that the delta variant is 50% more transmissible than alpha, do I have that right?
5: Yep, that's right.
2: Okay, and part of the reason it is transmissible is it seems to be replicating very quickly. So people who are infected with it are ending up with very high viral loads.
5: Yeah, you know, we think that the delta variant is hitting individuals harder because it replicates faster. So, you know, there was this study that looked at the amount of virus in the nose, right, the, the viral load, and it showed that Delta created sort of a thousand times more virus than what we'd seen with previous variants. You know, and if that's the case just on its own, the body might have a harder time fighting off that infection there's just so much virus getting embedded in the body that it's just easier for an infection to take hold and then i think the other side of that is oh it might be increasing the ability of the virus to spread right because it's not necessarily that every time you sneeze with delta that you have you're shooting out a thousand times more virus but it could be right it could be that high with vaccinated people You know, it's looking like with the CDC data that came out recently that they too can spread the virus. It's probably less often than with unvaccinated folks, but it's for the same reasons, right? Like there's just enough virus kind of embedded in those passageways that spew germs onto other people for the virus to to spread.
2: Well, Sikhan, say more about the process of genetic mutation, because it feels like this virus has agency, right? It's figuring out how to be more transmissible, but of course, it's not conscious. Um, Mutation in a virus is random. So how is it that that random mutation allows a variant to really take off the way that Delta has?
5: With viruses, because they're trying to invade our bodies, because they're trying to figure out ways to crack our immune system. Some viruses just have some features that allow them to mutate or adapt faster than the, than others. And so with coronaviruses, it turns out that they have a polymerase, which is an enzyme that makes copies of their genetic genome, right? It makes copies so that way you can expand the amount of virus and that way it can sort of replicate. It turns out that that enzyme is just a little more error prone than other versions of the uh, the same enzyme that we see in other viruses or other organisms. And so that's what kind of gives the coronavirus a leg up. It makes more mistakes when it copies its genome. You know, a lot of those mutations actually I would say, you know, 99.999999% of those mutations don't do anything and some make the virus weaker, but every once in a while, uh, the the coronavirus, you know, it hits that that lever on the slot machine and it hits the jackpot and is able to increase its ability to harm us and, and to replicate. I mean, that's really what the virus is doing, right? It wants, all it cares about is multiplying. Like it doesn't know that it's hurting us. And so this feature just kind of allows it to do that. Now,
2: one thing that has been implied, but we haven't said explicitly, which we should, is that the majority of these cases of the Delta variant of of COVID 19 are among the unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. And people are getting very sick. So, what is the connection between vaccination and variants? So, how is it that large numbers of unvaccinated people create room for a variant to form? In other words, if we had reached 70% vaccination in the early days of of when the the jabs were first given, would we be in this situation with Delta?
5: No, I think there was uh, an opportunity this spring to drive transmission rates to such a low point that the virus would have run out of opportunities to infect people, right? Like, we call this herd immunity or hitting the herd immunity threshold. If the virus gets into a new person, it's gonna mutate. I mean, if it gets into a new cell, it's it's gonna mutate. Like you have to think that when the virus infects a cell, what comes out of it is, you know, millions and billions of copies of that virus. And because of the issues that we have, the virus has with copying its genome, you're gonna have a, a lot of mutations there. So, and this is something that makes me really sad. And I think about it every single day, uh, especially right now as cases rise, like, we had a shot to, to stop the virus. We had a shot to stop the coronavirus this year. And because we didn't get vaccination rates up high enough, we've now just given more opportunities for these variants to form.
2: Well, here's your chance to make a plug for vaccination. Um, what would be a percentage of vaccination within the populace that might actually extinguish Delta or other variants? How high, how high does that vaccination rate have to be now?
5: Yeah, that's the thing. Like, we've, we've made the situation very hard for ourselves. You know, the estimates that I've been seeing is that, you know, now with the Delta variant, we'd probably need to get vaccinations up above 90% for there to be herd immunity. I think it's doable uh, if there's enough incentive to get shots. But... You know, originally we were predicting somewhere closer to seventy-five percent, eighty percent coverage in order to reach herd immunity.
2: Mm-hmm. Sikan, is there anything that you feel people are missing about the variant story that I that we haven't asked you here, but that you feel you know, it's really important that people understand this. <sighs>
5: Is there anything that people are missing? I think the one thing that people are missing is that there has been tremendous progress in our understanding of this virus. We know a lot more about the situations that are most dangerous, you know, crowded spaces indoors versus, you know, being outdoors and and socially distanced. I think with the constant stream of headlines, it could become hard to recognize that and realize that we know a lot more about how to keep people safe now. And so when the virus does change, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to immediately go back to a lockdown, but it can mean that we have to change our behavior slightly just to to match it. Well, finally,
2: the reminder that when we vaccinate, we protect not only ourselves, but other people. And so much of the vaccine debate has been around individual rights and what individuals can do and But really, the vaccinated are the first line of defense for the people who are really vulnerable. So our grandparents, our children, people who have immunocompromised systems. And so, Sikon, I wonder how that message of coming together, not just to fight for our own health and well-being, but to fight a common enemy together and protect those that need our protection how that message can be taken to heart, how we can come together as one and, and fight this enemy.
5: Yeah, we need, to, we need to do it. I mean, that's the, I, I know. Mean, that was a nailed, big question.
2: I'm you, not, I'm not no, even sure what I'm it, looking for there.
5: No, I was gonna bring it, I feel like you, you know, you stuck the landing and I was gonna bring up the Olympics because, you know, we look to that competition as like, you know, teams coming together to, to overcome and to, and to achieve. And I think, you know, in the current environment that we're in right now, whether it's because of politics or whether it's because of social media or whether it's because, you know, we've all been at home for a year and a half with most of our interactions coming through, you know, small squares that we see in Zoom. Yeah, we're at a moment where we're very much focused on the individual. And in order to beat COVID-19, we have to be a team, right? We we, we need to get vaccinated, right? We know that the vaccines are safe and that they work. The faster we do that, the faster that this is over. Or if we don't wanna do that, then we need to team up to mask to stop the transmission of the virus. And then if if you don't wanna do that, then I'm like, well, do you want things to be open, right? Do you wanna feel safe when when you go outside? Because you know the real danger is that this virus figures out a way to evade our our vaccines right that somewhere down the road it learns how to 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 break us and then what do we what do we do then right you know if the vaccines become ineffective because we've allowed these variants to keep spreading it, it only makes the problem worse it only makes the situation harder on ourselves and so yeah there really needs to be uh, a team spirit Maybe there needs to be like a gold, silver, and bronze medal that we give out to everybody in order to get there.
2: Sikhan, thank you so much for joining us to talk to us about the variants. Thanks for having me.
4: Sikhan Akpan is the health and science editor at WNYC's website, Gothamist.
2: Well, Seth, we've come to that moment in the show where we look at the big picture. We've been talking about the consequences of a large unvaccinated population in the fight against this disease, what is the big picture?
4: Yeah, well, to begin with, there are the consequences of that. Uh, it's, it's not just that they may get sick or they may make their relatives sick. It's that, you know, they're running an, <laughs> an unauthorized experiment that's producing new variants of the disease. And, you know, uh, sooner or later, one will come out that, you know, doesn't care about whether you've been vaccinated or not.
2: Now, the good news, the good news is we have a way to fight those variants, If you could just lend not a hand, but an arm (laughs) and get a shot in the arm, we can put COVID behind us.
4: Yeah, it's not the first time that Americans have been asked to roll up their sleeves. So, yeah, I'm kind of optimistic, you know, and eventually it gets to become a a national obsession that we do this together. I think we do need that. The other thing that's encouraging is that, you know, the, uh, the people who develop these vaccines now have more tools in their toolkit. They know, you know, the right direction to go. And as we've heard in the past, that first vaccine was developed within weeks of having the viral RNA, there sequenced. So, you know, they're getting faster and that's what we need if, if this goes south.
2: I want to pick up on your idea that that we want to emphasize that we're all in this together because certainly we are all in this together. We are not just one nation but we are one world and this virus does not discriminate um by nationality or religion or or political af- affiliation.
4: This is a worldwide problem, you know, the the virus doesn't care which country it's in. It doesn't stop at the border and that means unvaccinated around the world are also going to be a problem because they may cook up. I mean, where are these variants coming from? You know, Peru for there's a new one, uh, India, and so forth and so on. So that will continue until we get most of the world vaccinated. And that's not an impossible thing to do. Six months ago, you would have said, well, we'll never be able to do that. But that's not the case anymore. We have vaccine to spare. And so, you know, I, I think this is just a matter of international will more than anything else.
2: Well, we are not skeptical about the efficacy of vaccines nor the talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin, who helped make Big Picture Science possible. I am the executive producer of the show, Molly Bentley.
4: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David to NASA and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, among other endeavors, promotes critical thinking. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. Special thanks to some of our Patreon dolphins, William from Dusseldorf, Grania and Andrew from Ireland, and Mark Schindler from Honolulu.
2: If you'd like to hear your name in the credits, join us on Patreon. You can get access to exclusive bonus material and more at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. And with your support, we can keep injecting science into the human mind. This episode of Big Picture Science is one of our regular looks at critical thinking, Skeptic Check, anti-vax.
0: Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimburger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimburger.org.